0: back to I'm With Her. Today we're talking about the danger facing women and girls in Afghanistan. The Taliban takeover means a potentially enormous step backwards for women's rights. We're going to talk you through what you need to know and how you can help.
1: Plus we'll discuss the rise of the incel movement following a tragic mass shooting in the UK and ask why violent misogyny isn't considered a terrorist act.
0: And we're going to be breaking up this necessarily sombre episode with a 60
1: second rant from me and a confession from me. That's a lot to pack into the next 30 minutes. I'm ready. Let's get started. Mine with her is a safe space to chat to all things female. I'm Izzy and along with my co-host Cal, we've made it our mission to make hard truths into easy listening. I know we've got some heavy topics to talk through today and so I thought we'd kick off with a bit of light relief. So Cal... Is there a rant inside you just waiting to get out?
0: Uh, yes, there is, Izzy. Today, I want to talk about something very shallow, and I mean literally, I'm talking about women's pockets.
1: Ready, set,
0: go. I call this rant folly pockets i want to know why women don't have proper pockets why do clothing manufacturers assume women only require pockets big enough to pop a solo tampon and a lipstick into or worse the fake pocket which serves no fucking purpose other than to make a promise it cannot hope to keep do they assume we want to constantly lug capacious bags around with us to make up for our feeble excuse for pockets maybe the pocket industry is in bed with big handbag is it in fact a shadowy cabal responsible for perpetrating female pocket oppression so why can't we have pockets? Is it to stop us from having unseemly bulges, or in case we're secreting tiny pink pistols? Perhaps it's to keep us little women safe from pickpockets, or maybe they think that having man-sized pockets mean we'll start carrying around loose change and condoms and a Dremel multi-tool or whatever men keep in their delightfully cavernous pockets. Perhaps they're not sure that women need pockets if we don't have a penis that requires careful rearranging throughout the day. Well, I've got news for you, fellas. We too occasionally need to adjust our flaps or have a discreet genital scratch. So just give us proper pockets. It's literally the least you can do after a millennia of oppression. We promise we won't ask for much more, except those pesky human rights we're always banging on about. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I, love I it. feel really strongly about pockets.
1: A discreet <laughs> genital scratch. <laughs>
0: So many of us will have watched in absolute horror as the news unfolded over the last few days and weeks about the situation in Afghanistan and reading the stories of the women who live there. What we want to do in this episode is we want to tell the stories of those women who've been affected, but in their own words, and also give you some direction to find female run news and also how you can kind of engage with the story and learn more about it.
1: Yes, Cal, I am denied about how we might bring this segment to um, our listeners. There's so many podcasts and articles out there already doing a really good job of reporting um, what's happening out there who have direct connection with journalists in Afghanistan. And I think it's really important for people to go to those sources and learn as well. We'll put some in the show notes. And I just didn't, I don't want to do exactly what everybody else is doing. And um, it's important that we bring you this information through the I'm with her lens, which means women focus stories. Um, and today our responsibility is to amplify the voices of those women who have lived experience of this humanitarian crisis crisis but before we do that I just want to make one acknowledgement there is a very racist view of South Asian men about how they are violent and sexist and therefore tend to be forgotten about in advocacy work Um, but we have to acknowledge that the Taliban and its rule is going to really make these men suffer as well they're going to experience severe loss and trauma and I just want to ensure that anybody listening knows that our hearts are with all of you.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I think that's really important to say. Before we dig into what's happening now in Afghanistan, that we also look at kind of where they've come from and what's happened over the last few decades. Um, so I'm going to kind of run through a couple of things that I think will be really help with this. Up until sort of the 1970s, actually, women in Afghanistan had broadly similar rights to women in other Western countries. So, for example, they got the vote in 1918, which was only a couple of years after women in the UK got the vote. Um, the first girls' school was opened in 1921. And in 1964, the constitution ushered in equality for all. So women technically had the same rights as men. Uh, Gender segregation was even abolished in the 1950s. So actually, up until very recent memory, there was very little difference between Western democracies and women living in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, I actually have noticed um, this image being circulated, which is a beautiful picture of three women walking around and none of them are wearing burqas. And I just think it's good to... um, As we're talking about amplifying voices and as we're sharing information and making sure that people are keeping this crisis at the forefront of their minds, to also take into consideration how people see the burqa as being an oppressive garment and recognizing that that is actually not true for a lot of women. A lot of women choose to wear it for personal reasons or for religious reasons, but not just religious reasons and not because they're being told to and so when we're sharing images of that time about the you know the pre-taliban afghanistan i think it's also really important to share um images that don't just idealize the western um aesthetic as if western society is freedom and you know uh this religious muslim society isn't because that's actually also re- really inaccurate
0: i think that's i think that's absolutely really important to know and i think the the key thing there and the thing that you know stripping away all of that is choice the important thing here is women having choice women having choice over what they wear where they go what they learn who they're with and that's the bit that we're really getting to so let's kind of fast forward we've we've gone through you know a, a period of time where women had had found themselves on equal footing they did have access to education they could choose whether or not to cover themselves i start in public. They were able to partake of education, all really important things. Then, um, following claims of corruption in the monarchy, there was a battle of power between leaders and resistance um, movements to control territory, and in the early 1990s, the Taliban emerged as the kind of dominant political movement and military group. They took it upon themselves to, in their words, restore order, following the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan in 1989. And then they went on to instill a um, an extreme version of Sharia law. So by 1998, they'd taken control of about 90% of Afghanistan. This obliterated female progression. Women were banned from education and from the workplace. They weren't able to leave the house without a male chaperone. Showing any skin in public or accessing healthcare administered by a man was forbidden, let alone any involvement in political life. Rules were brutally enforced and this included live hangings of women. It was barbaric and horrific.
1: Um, 20 years ago co- coalition forces pushed them out of territory and over the past two decades the country has seen huge progress for women in the country. Um, women's movements are no longer legally restricted nor are women legally required to wear a burqa and but can freely choose to do so. A new constitution in 2003 protected women's rights and in 2009 Afghanistan adopted the Elimination of Violence Against Women, EVAW law. It ensured that 27% of the 250 seats in Afghanistan's parliament were reserved for women. Okay, it's not perfect, but uh <laughs> well, we're not perfect honest, in it... any country. It's actually exactly. pretty it's actually it pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah. Um yeah, so we definitely should be looking down our noses at at the country that Afghanistan was. Um until very recently. So education is currently open to women and female participation has seen highs of 65% with millions of girls in school and thousands at university. Girls accounted for 39% of the country's 9.5 million students last year. It's believed that roughly 22% of the Afghan workforce is now female and women have taken positions of power in politics, the judiciary and the military. There are more than 200 female judges in Afghanistan, and as of April 2021, there were over 4,000 women in law enforcement.
0: But as we know, over the last few weeks, the Taliban is back, taking control of the country once again, and the outcome is deadly. The Taliban takeover came in fast uh, after international forces withdrew from Afghanistan in May 2020. The militant group has since taken over the country city by city, moving city by city, and eventually occupying the capital of Kabul. In the advance towards the capital, forces destroyed medical facilities, they killed civilians, leaving their bodies on the ground in the streets, and they left thousands of Af- Afghanistans displaced. Afghanistan's leadership, including its president, have fled the country, leaving millions of Afghanistans now seeking asylum. But while the Taliban report that they will allow women to have freedom and rights, this is not what's being reported on the ground, see.
1: No, and as the situation changes daily, the enormous gains made over the past 20 years are set to be eroded. 2020 was the deadliest year on record for Afghan women. 2021 is set to eclipse this. Women, boys and girls made up close to half of all civilian casualties in the first half of 2021, um, comprising 46% of all civilian casualties. 80% of nearly a quarter of a million Afghans forced to flee since the end of May are women and children. Women and girls are in very real danger, and we need to talk about this. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. Make no mistake, no woman is safe and equal until every woman is safe and equal.
0: Absolutely. So I guess, you know, let's talk about what's happening right now on the ground. Um, I think it goes without saying the, the Taliban are deeply, deeply misogynist. Uh, we only have to look at their regime from 96 to 2001. It was notorious for denying women and girls access to education, to employment, freedom of movement and healthcare. And they basically, um, you know, what they call marriage, we call sexual enslavement, um, So let's talk about kind of where we are right now today. So we've been reading a lot of reports uh, unfolding in the news, and one recent uh, incident in the Azizi Bank in the southern city of Kandahar saw Taliban gunmen escorting female employees from their jobs, telling their male relatives that they could have them instead. There have been reports of the Taliban marking the doors of prominent women with pink or bright-coloured paint. The faces of women in posters inside beauty salons are being destroyed. There's no official confirmation as to why the images of women are being covered up, but it's likely that it's being done to appease the Taliban. Um, A woman told the BBC Women's Hour, just an hour ago, I received an update from Kabul where they're going house to house, searching for women who were activists, women who were bloggers, YouTubers, any woman who had a role in the development of civil society in Afghanistan. And um, if you're able to access it, there is actually a really... um, fascinating piece in the UK's uh, paper, The Guardian, which you can read online as well. They had an anonymous university student um, who wrote in uh, a couple of weekends ago uh, to talk about the devastating scenes in Kabul. Um, Her fellow female students have been evacuated by the police, but they couldn't use public transport to get out, to get safe. And men wouldn't take them because they were too afraid. So there are all these women who are being forced to flee, who are not getting the help that they need. Um, She reports this, this woman who wrote in that her sister was forced to flee her government job um and that she who's currently completing her second degree the student is basically going to have to burn everything that she's worked for her entire life every single scrap of education because it will it will it will put her in danger to be educated now and that to me is just horrifying I think, uh, you know, while I'm talking about kind of my own response to it, I think one of the things that are, has really struck me in this, one of the most heartbreaking aspects is, um, and it's quite a famous image now, you'll have seen the images of, of families, um, men, women and children sort of scrambling to get out of the airport, climbing over walls to, to escape Afghanistan, fleeing. And, um One of the images, there was a little girl, she's probably about six, uh, dark hair, little pink leggings on, a little backpack, being pulled over this wall. You know, you can see the terror, you can see the horror of of these people who are just desperately trying to keep their kids safe. And, you know, I, I know I've got boys, I've got two young boys, Even so, just the thoughts of my children being so afraid of what was happening to their country, to their mothers, to their sisters, to their families. Um, You know, I'm aware that they've got they've got young friends, um, you know, incredibly intelligent young women, amazing little girls. That the thought that some of my son's friends wouldn't be able to return to school in September and continue to learn the fact that my best friend's little girl who's only one. the fact that she she could grow up in a world where she wouldn't have any rights i just i can't get my head around how we're watching this unfold how we're watching this unfold is he I'm, I'm just devastated devastated I know,
1: I know and and that incredibly um troubling image of of them handing over the baby over the wall um yeah to the to the military and i just think when we're looking at this situation and when we're understanding what's happening it is so important for people to recognize that that the things people are doing in these moments are out of pure desperation Desperation. and fear for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And I think um you know there's been some criticism around um some of the men saving themselves over women and that sort of thing and i just think we're absolutely not in any position to judge how one might behave when in a state of absolute fear and although we wish people could support each other and help each other you know but just by supporting educated women people can be slaughtered and um yeah i mean i just want to share some of the some of the stories from a couple of women um just from their own words cuz you know right now we need to listen to them and i fear that the taliban is going to do its best to silence them so um one person, Mariam Nabavi, a journalist who um, whose report appeared in the Financial Times, said, As we fled to the relative safety of our homes, the streets were full of well-dressed modern women rushing to do the same, women's shoes abandoned in the urgency, littered in the roads. I just found that image so striking. It's almost like this terrible metaphor of um, individual uniqueness, their fashion sense, what mm. allows these women to express themselves, are just being completely abandoned.
0: And also to move freely, you know, the idea that you know you would have to throw off your shoes to be able to get away as quickly as possible. You know, yes. the, I mean, it's the it's the the opposite of the Cinderella story, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, and it's just a haunting image to me. Um, the Guardian reported um, a university student says she's seeing all around to the fearful faces of women and the ugly faces of men who hate women and that just reads to you know the misogynistic taliban um, their interpretation of sharia law um is Uh, is terrifying. One woman said, I feel I am the victim of this political war that men started. I felt like I can no longer laugh out loud. I can no longer listen to my favorite songs. I can no longer meet my friends in our favorite cafe. I can no longer wear my favorite yellow dress or pink lipstick. And I can no longer go to my job or finish the university degree that I worked for years to achieve. It's just all being snatched from them. And what the world has experienced collectively with the COVID-19 pandemic is not something that can be compared. But I do hope that people's choices that have been limited over the last 18 months, I just hope that allows people to be more empathetic when these people are becoming those who are seeking asylum. I want to know what we can do.
0: Okay, so how do you fight violent oppression like this? We know women are strong. We know the women of Afghanistan can't take away what those women have done for the last 20 years. They can't, the Taliban can't take their education, their drive to work, their taste of freedom. But it is incredibly clear that their rights and their lives are at stake. So a few days ago, um, Malala Yousafzai, um, the famous activist who was, of course, shot in the head by the Taliban in um, A few years ago for speaking out about girls' rights to education, she issued a call of action to global leaders, asking them to defend the rights of women in the country. And what she said was, we watch in complete shock as the Taliban takes control of Afghanistan. I am deeply worried about women, minorities and human rights advocates. She wrote this on Twitter. She said global, regional and local powers must call for an immediate ceasefire and provide urgent humanitarian aid and protect refugees and civilians. So that's what needs to be done on a global level that's what the leaders need to do and I guess what we need to talk about now is what we can do as individuals what we can do as women what we can do as the female community to support other women and children and of course the men there as well
1: yeah and I think that often with with these huge um complicated complex issues it's really easy to feel like we're completely helpless that it's nothing to do with us and what power could we have at all In in fact the individual impact we can have is pretty significant. And so we want to just go through a list of things um, that we can all do. And we want to call the whole I'm With Her community to jump on board and do this together. Um, so thank you to the to the community members who have started sharing this information in the first place, sharing resources, offering advice um, on how to be a good ally. Um, and thanks to the incredible global Global Citizen resource as well. Um, So the first thing you can do, um, if you can, is donate your support to Humanitarian Aid. Um, We will list in the show notes a bunch of organisations whose funding is going directly to where it needs to be, um, such as to nurses and doctors on the ground, to provide aid, food supplies, everything essential that people can't access right now.
0: Great. And then I think one of the things that's really important, and and this is a bit of um, an important one for me uh, as a journalist, Um, is that we need to support women's media and female reporters. Um, Women's journalists in Afghanistan are facing massive, massive threats, not only for working, but for working in the media very specifically, which is an industry that has been particularly targeted by the Taliban. Um, I stand with my sisters across the world who work in the media, who work in journalism, who tell these stories at great personal risk to themselves. So you can help them uh, by following a couple of different media organisations, and we will put these on the show notes. Um, They're both organisations that are staffed by female journalists. You'll get accurate information about what's happening from people you can trust. Um, Keep yourself educated and informed. That's really important. We can't fight this if we don't know what's going on and we don't hear their voices. (laughs)
1: The other thing that anybody can do is amplify the voices of Afghan people on social media. Anybody can do this on this platform. And I just want to make it very, very clear about one thing. Showing your support and speaking up about a humanitarian crisis on social media is not political share it let people know what's happening we really cannot turn our backs to this we can put
0: pen to paper we can hit the keyboards or we can sign petitions um, there are a number of petitions calling to protect the lives and rights of afghans most vulnerable people you can write to your mp to demand action if an mp receives five letters of the same topic in one week then it is put to the top of the list of priorities which puts pressure on governments to do better this is your right as a citizen to ask for these things
1: Absolutely, and I have a success story in regards to exactly that. Um, today, I think it was 33 people um, in detention in Australia um, that have been seeking asylum for eight years have been released. Oh, oh
0: wow. And
1: that is from the pressure and the phone calls. I did a power hour with the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre the other day and 200 of us sat on a Zoom call and we rang around all the MPs in the country and we lodged 600 phone calls. And it's that pressure and that collective action that that actually makes a difference to these people's lives. So the last thing you can do is support Amnesty International who are running a campaign to stop taxpayer money being spent on military weapons. A sobering fact is that the country that you live in might be using your taxpayer money to sell weapons, military equipment or surveillance tech um, to assist in fueling that fight. Amnesty International is trying to stem the flow of arms, so let's help support their campaign. Something that I want to add in here when getting involved in all of this is that having good intentions is a really positive step but it needs to be done responsibly and there are two lessons that i have learned along the way the first one is if you're not an expert do not share your unsolicited opinions these can actually do more damage than good even if you do have good intentions so this is why we say amplify the voices of those people that have lived experience or um are professionals in their field because the last thing you want to be doing is contributing to misinformation Mm -hmm. and that includes the second thing which is avoid simplistic narratives that paint this situation as an internal dispute between two different tribes so if you're not acknowledging the ongoing role of various actors involved in this whole situation then you are contributing to that misinformation so it's not to scare anybody from getting involved and speaking up because we will make mistakes along the way and that's okay there's nothing wrong with saying um that you are now speaking from a more educated place. But um, we've created this segment, we've created this um, these resources for you to go back to so that you can share and get involved in a really, really effective way um, to help the people that need it the most. And those are the women and children of Afghanistan.
0: Okay, before we start this segment, we are going to be talking about the rise of the incel movements uh, across the world. And I do want to put a very hearty trigger warning in front of this. We are going to be uh, including some excerpts from real words written by real incels, and you may find them disturbing. Uh, frankly, I hope you do find them disturbing. Um, thank you for listening. If you need to skip this, it will be about five minutes.
1: In the past few years, a subset of straight men calling themselves incels have constructed a violent political ideology around the injustice of women refusing to have sex with them. As Cal mentioned in the trigger warning there, we're just going to do a couple of quotes. We don't aim for this to be um, triggering for people, but I think it's really important for people to realize how extreme these views are, uh, which is why we've decided to share a couple of quotes from them. Society has become a place for worship of females, and it's so fucking wrong. They're not gods. They are just a fucking cum dumpster. Reads a typical rant on an incel message board. And uh, another gem here. Women are the ultimate cause of our suffering. They are the ones who have unjustly made our lives in a living hell. We need to focus more on our hatred of women. Hatred is power. They use terms like roasties to describe sexually active women's labia, because it looks like roast beef apparently. And have a particular fondness of what they call JBs, which is short for jailbait, which is code for underage girls. So the first thing I want to
0: say is the idea that being disgustingly misogynist might be the actual reason for their failures with women doesn't appear to have occurred to incels. In fact I'm going to say that I don't think incels are really actually looking for sex. They don't seem to like women very much, to be honest. And you kind of have to like women to want to have sex with them, in my opinion, which leads me to believe that what they're actually looking for is absolute male supremacy. Sex defined by them as possession of a woman is just proof of that dominance and that superiority. It's not actually about entering into a delightful relationship with women. What incels want is actually incredibly specific. They want to be able to have sex on demand, just to be clear, with young, beautiful women, regardless of what that woman wants. They believe this is their natural right as men. It's not about sex, it's about control, and it's about male dominance.
1: Since 2014, men who call themselves involuntary celibate and blame women for their own lack of sexual and social status have carried out mass killings in California, Florida, Toronto and now the UK. In August 2021, a UK man who subscribed to incel websites and spewed women-hating dogma murdered six people with a pump-action shotgun, including a three-year-old girl and her father. The victim mentality they hold is entitlement, and this is dangerous. It's believed that the men of this movement have been responsible for at least 50 murders across the US and Canada alone. So we ask, why are the authorities around the world not treating this ideology as a serious terrorism threat? And the simple
0: fact is, it's not like this, this hasn't been brought up. It hasn't been put in front of our decision makers. So according to Alex Debranco, who is the executive director of the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism, incel related violence is increasing. And despite its growing attention, it is still not being taken as seriously as it needs to be. That's a direct quote.
1: Yeah, it seems that for some people's understanding of what terrorism is, is that it can only be carried out by certain groups, such as Muslims. So the word is being used in if- properly reserved for jihadi extremists which is basically just a racist um outcome but somehow and quite disturbingly hate and violence toward women is somehow a less important crime Uh, the definition is public violence to advance a political social or religious cause or ideology that makes it terrorism right Yes, yes, it fucking does. And this is the, this is the bit that I absolutely don't understand
0: about all of this. And again, around the world, the only group that is not protected under law appears to be women. So you can perform a hate crime or a terrorism act against pretty much any group of people with the exception of 50% of the world's population that apparently there is absolutely no reason to think that we might be subject to particular types of abuse because of our gender. So in fact, here in the UK, six months ago, there was a report into the incel movement which warned that anti-extremist laws had not kept pace with this rising threat. The Home Office-backed Commission for Countering Extremism said that the women-hating cult of incels amounted to a hateful extremism, that's a direct quote, and its followers created a climate- conducive to terrorism, hate crime and violence. This was led by a former Scotland Yard counter-terror chief called Sir Mark Rowley, who helped with the report and said at the time, this is a watershed moment. He was very clear six months ago that this was an emerging, rising and very serious threat against women. So why, six months on, is this still not being taken seriously? How can a man who openly expressed violent, women-hating views on incel websites be granted a gun licence not once, but twice, as was the case in the Plymouth shootings? Why hasn't this been taken seriously enough, Izzy? Why? I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just answer me. <laughs> I expect Izzy um, to know everything. <laughs> I wanted to go into this to find out what is what are the arguments that people are coming up with or excuses or, you know, those pathetic public announcements that Mm -hmm. police chiefs make under pressure of journalists and all that kind of shit. And I found that, um, actually, Alex um, DeBrantz again, who you mentioned before, was quoted saying something that I find really interesting. And she said that the incels display very high levels of mental health issues, high levels of a history of bullying. This is a movement that is desperately sad, which suggests that Officials are looking at these violent crimes with compassion, right? Right. Something something I usually like to advocate for. I have absolutely no problem with intellectual research looking into the catalyst of violent behavior I have no problem with peop- people looking at the root causes and therefore finding solutions to stop this from happening in the long term looking at what can change in society to tackle this but what I do have a problem with is, is this level of compassion for violent hatred is not afforded to other groups around the world and being used as a reason strong enough to avoid looking at the violence for what is terrorism this just cements the fact that violence against women fa- For hatred of women is not as important as violence against Christians, for example. The definition of terrorism does not contain an exemption for mental illness. Incel ideology is organised misogyny, a space where the hatred of women is accepted, encouraged and inflated, and it is leading women to being killed. Debrance sums it up for me. She says, this is an ideology. It's not a physiological disorder, she said. There's a lot of undue sympathy. These people have the same far-reaching aims that white nationalists have, which is a serious threat to people's lives. And I say people because incels are also likely to, tar- to target men who they deem, who say, are lucky enough to have been given sex by women.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's really important to note here just to kind of build on that. Um, So, for example, I I know many people who've gone stretches, women, let me just be clear, who've gone stretches without being able to access uh, sex with a man. Do you know what any of those women haven't done. They haven't started a hateful board talking about how all men are scumbags and then got themselves a pump-action shotgun and gone off and shot a load of men. Because funnily enough, you don't have a right to somebody else's body. You absolutely don't. There is no right to sex with somebody else's body. And when we strip away all of this, what this incel movement actually is, is a group of men around the world who think that they should be able to rape women whenever they want. That's what this actually is. Let's not sugarcoat this. I'm sorry that they feel disappointed with women in their lives, or they haven't or whatever, or they've got psychological issues, but the simple fact is the incel movement is literally a movement that thinks that you should be able to have sex with women without their consent whenever you want, on demand, because you have a penis. That is rape. This is a rape movement, a global rape and violence movement against women, and it's not okay. One of the things that we need to look at here when we're talking about why isn't this defined as a terrorist act, why isn't this being looked at as terrorism, is that if it was classified as terror Then there are so many more powers that the police and the judicial system could bring to bear on these men. It means they could step in earlier. It means that they could monitor these boards and step in when there's any kind of collusion, when there's any kind of indication that they're going to do something wrong. This is simple stuff. So by simply classifying this stuff as terrorism, you are automatically granting more money, more powers, and more abilities to tackle this at the root source, rather than trying to mop up afterwards. It just seems so simple to me. Okay, so what's clear to me is the hatred of women and the communities of men who engage in that celebration of that hatred online. They need to be taken much, much more seriously. And that needs to start in schools. We need to talk about social media companies and how they monitor this stuff. And of course, most importantly of all, governments and lawmakers around the world need to recognise this, not just as an ongoing and increasing threat, but one that needs to be taken as seriously as any other kind of terrorism. So today is Izzy's turn to confess. Um, Izzy, I want you to spill your guts to me and I promise that I will listen with grace and mercy. What do you want to tell me today?
1: Thank you. Um, Yeah, this one is a really hard truth that I have been doing a lot of thinking about. Um, I talk a lot about supporting women and treating people with compassion. But when my friend recently got cut, caught up in an abusive relationship, I found it really hard not to be mad at her. So let me unpack this a little bit for you. I'm really, really grateful for people in the I'm With Her community who have shared their stories of abuse and what it was like to be in an abusive relationship and the isolation that came with it because that has educated me to be able to still be there for my friend, I hope, in the way that she needed but i guess the issue was that when she was with this guy um the tactic of isolation was used greatly that our relationship was abandoned and um i just felt really hurt by that and before i realized she was in this situation i didn't know that there was an abusive situation happening um I became angry that I had just been shut out. For me, the way that I read that situation is that she was newly single and enjoying life and I was no longer relevant to that. And um, that hurt my feelings. And um, I think then understanding uh, about the abuse and then revising the way that I could respond to her and and what I needed to do, I realized that actually um, I kept saying to her, so you've spent 32 yeah. years building up this incredible human. He doesn't have the right to take away that confidence in the three months that you've been with him. And I actually had to remind myself, he doesn't have that right to take our friendship away either. I shouldn't afford him the same power mm-hmm. um, in my situation. And I kind of needed to listen to my, the advice I was giving to her. I needed to feel that for myself. Um, and it's such a selfish place to come from. But I, it made me really think about the power of these abusive relationships and how they isolate the victim and the effects on the people close to them
0: it's something that doesn't get talked about very often and I think one of the things and I know actually in 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 a couple of areas we've sort of covered this in other podcasts is that it's very easy to think that you will always be able to be there in the right way for somebody that if you love them and you care about them that whatever happens you will always be able to provide them with the right support at the right time and say the right things in actuality that's not true and I think you need to forgive yourself for that because actually even just having these feelings and these frustrations and and actively seeking to learn more about how you can do better or how you can challenge the views that you've had or gather more experiences so that you can have a wider view as to what your friend is going through shows how important this is but it also shows how difficult it is it's not easy compassion is not easy it's actually exhausting and it is incredibly incredibly emotionally and physically exhausting watching somebody you care about Watching them destroy their lives or go down into a spiral of, of mental ill health or be caught in these abusive relationships, it's horrifying. And it's yeah. horrifying to be helpless to help them if you're not able to actually actively get them to listen or get them out of that situation or any of those things. You have to watch somebody that you love in a vulnerable and dangerous situation. And that isn't easy for anyone.
1: No, and no seeing one, her. No one knows
0: how to deal with this.
1: And seeing her choose to go back to him. I was so angry at her because it seemed so obvious the hours we'd spent on the phone in tears building her back up, um, and the and the fact that she still decided to go back and I just wanted to scream like, why would she choose it? And you know, being self and being really honest here, but you know, selfishly, I felt like she was choosing him over me. Like she knew that when she was with him, she didn't get the friendship with me, and she'd actively chosen to have that over the friendship that we had. And um, and then, you know, I think that realizing that, you know, this leads to your own insecurities, right? My own worries about being abandoned and not enough and not interesting enough and being really far away and all of that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and um, I internalized all of that thinking that maybe it was me, maybe it is me, and then... Um, Then you become lethargic about trying to offer support and reach out. You kind of accept the situation, right? You start um, thinking that this is just how it's going to be and then... um... And then things continue to spiral, I suppose.
0: I think the most important thing to remember here is that in these in these situations, there is one very clear person that is causing this impact, that is causing these ripples to both the person in the relationship and to their friend. And that is the abuser themselves. I'm counting every gamut of abuse here, whether it's coercive control, whether it's financial or emotional or physical abuse. In an abusive relationship, the abuser works on chipping away at that person, on isolating them, um, on chipping away at their confidence, on their self-esteem, on minimizing their own feelings about their strength and about their well-being and about who they are as a person and that's what they do. and actually it can be very quick. it can be within a few months. So the key thing I think to remember here when we're talking about all of this and, and I think it would be worth us doing a special looking at um, you know abuse and relationships and things like that is that women are at them most at risk when they make the decision to leave a relationship so as much as we on the sidelines want desperately desperately just want to get them away from that situation want them to be safe and to be free it's also important to remember that that unpicking and stepping away from that individual and getting themselves to a safe place can be a very long and very torturous process so i think it's really important that a you have compassion for yourself that you've done as much as you can and there is only so much you can do when it comes to private relationships you can provide that advice you can provide that support you can let let them know they're safe and that they're listened to and that they're loved. But they also, we also have to remember that it is not as easy as just deciding to go.
1: It didn't... When we talk about it on the podcast and when we talk about abuse and the effects of women and all that sort of thing, it seems so obvious. It seems so clear. It seems so straightforward about what it is that I need to do and how I need to show up. And I feel really, really ashamed that I wasn't able to show up in the way that I wanted to and that my emotions and... The way that I felt was maybe prioritized at points when it shouldn't have been. So um, it's it's a journey. It's a I guess I've I've learned a lesson. Um, she's okay and she will be okay and I will always be there for her. Um, but it was a shock because it wasn't anything I saw coming. And so I'm sharing this because. I want people to know that when we're on this podcast talking about these things it doesn't mean that we're perfectly executing these things either I'm a
0: horrible hypocrite a horrible hypocrite I mean honestly (laughs) you know and I'm not going to go into details on this one perhaps for another time but a a friend of mine a very dear friend of mine made a decision that I absolutely didn't agree with recently and I really struggled with it I was very angry with them for the decision that they made and I didn't know how to articulate that I didn't actually it came from a place of fear when I was able to strip it away I was angry with them because I was afraid on their behalf and what I'm hearing from you is I think that's exactly the same emotion we're all human we're not perfect and absolutely you know it's okay to be afraid because you're afraid because you love them and you want to help them because you love them you're not always going to get everything right none of us are perfect thank you so much for joining us again and for all your continued support come and join us in the i'm with her facebook group for more discussions if you want to add anything to the stuff that we've talked about today and you can also hit that purple subscribe button on apple Podcasts or the green follow button on spotify and that really helps us
1: yes the best thing you can do is to tell a friend about us so please do share with all your loved ones Uh, we absolutely love hearing from the community and thank you again for trusting us to tell your stories and speak about the topics you bring into the group Keep sharing, keep talking, and keep supporting each other. Cal and I will see you next week for a very special podcast edition. This podcast has been recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We take inspiration from the rich history of storytelling within the cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and respect their endless resilience and strength.